0: This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. What's up, everybody, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 46, entitled Anti-Imperial Christology in Philippians, part two. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast aiming to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith, and I am your host. Last week, we began to examine Paul's letter to the Philippians to see whether anti-imperial Christology could be observed within it. Sure enough, Paul's message to the believers in the Roman colony of Philippi depicted Jesus in a manner that subverted Caesar and the claims surrounding him. From Paul's perspective, if Jesus was the true Savior and Lord, then Caesar was neither of these things. This Christological teaching served to draw Paul's disciples into a fully dedicated, faithful relationship with Jesus and his kingdom instead of trying to maintain a divided allegiance with both Jesus and Caesar. This week we will begin to look at the massively important Christological passage of Philippians 2, 5-11. This passage reads, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, while existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of humanity. Being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's Philippians two five through eleven. Could Paul also be making anti-imperial claims in this passage? especially in the declaration that every knee would bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. This episode will begin to explore how Paul's original Philippian readers of this letter would have understood this Christological passage in light of their formal loyalties to Rome and her emperor. In fact, there is enough material regarding imperial readings of Philippians 2, 5-11 to cover this episode and at least one more. So stay tuned for that episode as well. My research for this episode draws upon the work of Peter Oakes and his study on Philippians. He notes several areas in Philippians 2 that are anti-imperial in nature. So let's begin by examining their merits both theologically and historically. Our first point today is looking at the shared language with the anti-imperial passage of Philippians 3, 20-21. When one examines the Greek text of Philippians 2, 5-11, and Philippians 3, 20-21, the passage we examined at length in our previous episode, it becomes clear that Paul has intentionally linked the two passages. What this means is that since Philippians 3, 20-21, is clearly anti-imperial in its depiction of Jesus, then Philippians 2, sharing its vocabulary is also anti-imperial. As a reminder, Philippians 3, 20-21 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Let's look at some of the specifics that link these two passages together. So I'm going to use some Greek words here. I'll try to translate them as best as possible for our non-Greek reading listeners. So in Philippians 2 and in Philippians 3, the two passages we're looking at, there's a lot of vocabulary that is shared among them. And a lot of this vocabulary is extremely rare in Paul, implying that there is a deliberate and intentional connection between these two passages. We see the word form, Jesus being in the form of God and taking the form of a servant, using the Greek word morphe in Philippians 2, 6-7. And we also see a similar word, symorphos, in Philippians three twenty one, which talks about conforming. So we can see the common language that's there. We'll see that Jesus was existing or being in Philippians 2, 6, and that there exists or there is in Philippians 3.20, both using the same word, eparchy. We can also see the transformation, the Greek verb, metaschematizo, in Philippians 3.21, and also we can see Jesus having the appearance using the related word, schema. So we have schema, and then the verb, metaschematizo. So that would be Philippians 3.21, and also the reference in Philippians 2.8. We could see the humble state related to the people that are being transformed in Philippians 3:21, using the word tapinosis. and we could also see that Jesus humbled Himself, using the same Greek word tapinosis in Philippians 2:8. We could see that Jesus is going to subject all things to Himself, all things panta using the Greek word panta there, in Philippians 3.21. And we can see that every knee will bow, using a different form, pon, in Philippians 2.10. So, subjecting all things, and every knee bowing, using the same Greek word. We can also see that Jesus Christ is Lord, or more clearly translated as the Lord Jesus Christ. That is Kyrios Jesus Christos in Philippians 2.11, and also we can see the Lord Jesus Christ using the same Greek, Kyrios Isus Christos, in Philippians 3.20. And lastly, we can see that the glory, the glorious body in Philippians 3.21, using the word doxa, and the glory given to God the Father in Philippians 2.11, also using the word doxa. Many of these words are rare in Paul, increasing the likelihood that their appearance in Philippians 2, 5-11 and Philippians 3, 20-21 is deliberate and intentional. Furthermore, Jesus is mentioned by name 22 times in Philippians, and only twice within those 22 times with the phrase, Lord Jesus Christ. And both of these occurrences are in our two passages. I think that's very interesting. The point being there is that our previous episode demonstrated that Philippians 3, 20-21 was clearly anti-imperial in nature, and it shares intentionally and very deliberately many rare words and phrases with our present passage, Philippians 2, 5-11, and therefore it's extremely likely that Philippians 2 is also anti-imperial in nature. Our second point, notice that Philippians 2 describes Christ as having universal authority. So the topic here is universal authority given to Jesus. Paul declares in Philippians 2, 9-11, that Jesus received from the Father the name that is above every name, that every knee would bow unto him, and that every tongue would confess him as Lord. This seems to be an obvious jab at Caesar. The only person in the Greco-Roman world of the first century who could ever be described as having universal authority. Not even Zeus and his followers suggested that Zeus held the sort of authority praised upon the emperors of Rome. The global authority claimed by the Roman Emperor can be observed on both coins and ancient inscriptions. For example, Coins were minted with Caesar Augustus on one side and Nike, the goddess of conquering, standing upon a globe on the other. There we can see that the authority given to Caesar was bestowed upon him by the goddess Nike, the goddess of conquering, as she is standing upon a globe, demonstrating Augustus's right and authority as the worldwide ruler. An inscription in Pergamum offered these lofty claims quote, The Emperor, Caesar, Son of God, the God Augustus, the overseer of every land and sea. Quote. There we can see that the inscription hails Augustus as God, Son of God, the Emperor, and the overseer of every single location and every sea. That seems to indicate a worldwide authority. A similar inscription in Greece focused upon Nero, the emperor ruling during the time of Paul's writing of Philippians. And it reads, quote, Nero, the Lord of all the world, quote. There the inscription actually uses the definite article. The Lord of all the world is Nero. These coins and inscriptions were produced by the common populace, by ordinary citizens, praising Caesar's claim to worldwide authority. This is not Rome shoving this propaganda down the throats of their citizens. No, this is the common, average citizen making this claim on their own, voluntarily. So for Paul to come along and argue that every knee would bow to Jesus and that every tongue would confess Jesus as Lord, this is deliberately aimed at the emperors of Rome and their claim of universal authority. In fact, the phrase every knee presumably includes Caesar's knee as well. A third point today is that the authority was granted to Jesus. Keyword there is granted. This authority was ultimately granted to Jesus. It would be too easy to read Philippians 2, 5-11 and suggest that Jesus' authority was rewarded to him for his faithfully obedient human life or that he was vindicated with authority however when we read Paul's wording closely the primary sense seems to be that Jesus gained authority from God this can be observed and that the human Jesus is the subject of verses 6 through 8 in our present passage while God the Father becomes the primary subject in verse 9 the tone shifts towards the Father who highly exalts Jesus and bestows upon Jesus the Father's authoritative name it is Jesus who empties himself but it was the Father who exalted Jesus in other words Christ did not raise himself from the dead And Christ certainly did not crown himself with universal authority. It was God the Father who raised Jesus and God the Father that bestowed upon Jesus this lordship. This is highly significant because it was understood that the Roman emperors had their authority granted upon them as well. This is why the family line of emperors, beginning with the Julio-Claudian line, each Caesar was declared son of God, and that former God was the deified former emperor who transfers his authority upon the newly appointed emperor. So, when Augustus dies, Augustus is deified into God, and thereby Tiberius becomes the new emperor, and Tiberius is the son of God, and thereby that authority from Augustus is passed along because of that adoption to sonship. This concept of Roman emperors having their authority granted unto them was so widely held that the Emperor Hadrian, who was accused of seizing his authority by force, had to produce a story about how the former Emperor Trajan adopted Hadrian on his deathbed. In other words, the Roman emperor was the lord of the world because power and authority were bestowed upon him by a competent body. And Paul, therefore, argues that Jesus is the true Lord of the world because the true God has raised and exalted him to a position of authority. So, in conclusion, we have observed that, number one, the massively important and complex Christological passage of Philippians 2, 5-11, which depicts the obedience of the human Messiah, who was exalted by God to the position of Lord of the world, appears to subvert the imperial claims about Rome and her emperor on many points. Number two, we saw that Paul argues that God invested universal authority upon Jesus. And the only other person in the first century AD world who was said to possess this sort of authority, was Caesar of Rome. One day, even the mighty emperors of Rome will bow their knees and confess that Jesus is the true Lord. And number three, we observe that in a culture where Caesar's authority had to be granted unto him by a competent body, Paul argues for the highest possible person of authority to bestow upon Jesus his lordship and authority. Namely, God the Father. If you enjoy the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, please consider supporting us. You can check out this episode's subscription for a PayPal link. And thank you so much for those who have already contributed to keeping this podcast alive and well on the internet. Thank you so much for joining us today. Look forward to our subsequent episodes where we will continue looking at anti-imperial Christology in this passage of Philippians 2, 5-11. My name is Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, you folks take care.